Lord, we thank you for your word and the continual way that, in particular, James is stirring our hearts and touching on areas that maybe we have not considered. Would you give us freedom to be humble before you and that your, whole, that your, your Holy Spirit, Lord, would, would work in our hearts through your word and through the, the preaching of your word. Lord, allow me as your messenger to be faithful to your text and to you. We ask in your precious name. Amen. But one of the key issues that Martin Luther struggled with and finally embraced was what the Apostle Paul teaches, that salvation or justification is by faith alone. If you look up at the five solas here, you'll notice it's the second one on the line. This was a key truth in the context of the Reformation. John Calvin in his Institute says that justification by faith is the main hinge on which religion turns. And in stressing that salvation is by faith alone, the Apostle Paul emphasizes that in order for salvation to occur, it is not a matter of works or merit that man brings to the table, but solely by faith in what Christ has accomplished for us by shedding his blood on the cross. And to that end, Luther struggled with our text today. Justification, salvation is by faith alone is what he understood. But here in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, James emphasizes that faith must be accompanied by works. So you can see the tension that he's going through and that the wrestling match that he would be experiencing. So the concern for Luther was that what James is saying seems to contradict what Paul is saying, that faith plus works saves. And the problem with that is that is what the Catholic Church taught, that faith plus works equals salvation. Listen carefully to Canon 30 of the Council of Trent. And the Council of Trent was a gathering of the Catholics to respond to the teachings of the Reformation. Here is what the Catholic Church says. If anyone says that after the grace of justification has been received to every penitent sinner, the guilt is remitted and the debt of eternal punishment is blotted out in such wise that there remains not any debt of temporal punishment to be discharged either in this world or in the next, or uh, in purgatory, before the entrance to the kingdom of heaven can be opened to him, let him be anathema. And you say, well, that's written in such a way I have no idea what they're saying. So let me put it in layman's terms, and hopefully we'll will bring it down to a little bit more understanding. If you believe that justification or conversion results in the total and complete removal of guilt and that your eternal debt for sin is totally and completely blotted out so that there's no debt that needs to be worked off in this life by works or in purgatory, and as such, you can enter into heaven freely. If that's what you believe, then... You are anathema. All right? If, if you believe that at conversion, you are immediately and completely freed from sin because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross, you are anathema. 
Now, what does anathema mean? Well, it literally means devoted to destruction. But in this context, it means to be put out of the church or excommunicated. And honestly, I was listening to some Catholics this week kind of talking about them and say, you know, a lot of the Reformed people, they want to say that, you know, the anathema means that, you know, that you have been, you have been, you know, devoted to destruction, which is what it literally means. I'm like, no, 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 it just means you've been put out of the church. But, but the implication here is that you are put out of the church because of a doctrinal position. And if you're put out of the church because of a doctrinal position, you were called a heretic. And then the question is, what did they do with heretics? Well, unless you repented or recanted of your position, you would suffer discipline, you would be thrown in jail, and ultimately you would be executed, burned at the stake. So there isn't a softness here. There's a real result to having this kind of position. So the reformers, many of them, were captured by the church at that point in time, held in certain councils, found to be heretics, and were executed. Now, in summary, what the Catholic system is saying is this, that there is a need for justification uh, by faith, but that justification by faith is not sufficient. It's part of the package, but it is not the complete package. But that justification that is not sufficient, one must continue to work off that debt of guilt in this world and in the next in purgatory before one can enter the kingdom of heaven. I'm just rephrasing what that canon says. Now, that is an important backdrop for the significance of our text. For the Catholic Church teaches, as you see on the screen there, faith plus works equals salvation, but the reformers and the scriptures teach that faith plus nothing equals salvation. Now, Paul and James are not teaching that faith plus works equals salvation at all. But but here is what they are saying. Paul is saying salvation is by faith alone. James is saying true religion, true faith is by faith but must include works. You say, well, that doesn't quite clarify it for me here, all right? Douglas Moo talking about this says Paul identifies an efficacy to pre-conversion works, but James is pleading for the absolute necessity of post-conversion works. In other words, pre-conversion works are not included in what is necessary for salvation. But once you are saved, there must be works present to show that that conversion is true. Okay? Kent Hughes says it this way. Paul was fighting against tradition, which promoted a false work salvation. James was fighting against a light faith, which minimized the necessity of works after coming to Christ. So as you can see on the screen there, you have Paul and you have James. Paul is anticipating conversion by saying, here is how a man gets saved, by faith alone. Works do not contribute to our salvation. James, however, is speaking about how do I know that someone is truly a believer? Well, I look not at their statement of faith. I look at their works. We prove our salvation by our works. Right? So the reality is that James and Paul are not contradicting each other at all. One is saying how a man gets saved by faith alone. The other one is saying, how do we prove we're saved 
and we do that by our works. The reformers would summarize these truths in the following way, saying, it is faith alone which justifies, yet the faith which justifies is never alone. Let me say that again. It is faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is never alone. That is what James has already said, isn't it? He's already said that we must be doers of the word and what? Not hearers only. He's not saying don't hear. He's saying hear, receive, but don't just receive. The evidence of the the reality of your faith is what you do. It shows this is who you are and that your faith is true. I remember when I first went to Russia many years ago, I was asked many questions by those who were part of the Russian Baptist Union Church. And what became quickly apparent is that their view of the church in America was, was very, very jaded. And here's why. And I just throw this out there, and some of you might catch it right away. Bill Clinton was the president, and at that time attended a Southern Baptist church. And, of course, their view of America was very shaped by Hollywood. So this is, you think of people living in another country, how do they view our country? We have a Christian president, and we have Hollywood that is pouring out all sorts of stuff, right? So our Russian brothers and sisters thought of American Christianity as a form of Christianity that believed in Christ, but did not live in light of that belief. They would say, how can the president claim to be a Baptist when he's having intimate relations with an intern who's not his wife in the White House? And since in the United States you have Hollywood, which puts out all sorts of stuff, lots of filth, um, how can America truly be a place where the church is actually seeking to live it out? And you know what? Their issue was simple and straightforward. Can you call yourself a Christian if you don't live like a Christian? These These are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. These are the questions that James is wrestling with here, and he's driving home. Now, certainly the Baptist Union may have struggled with some forms of legalism, but the question remained and still remains, how does our lifestyle reflect who we are in Christ? It's an important question. Do our thoughts, words, and actions reflect true Christianity? Or do we give lip service to Christianity and think that since We have our ticket to heaven that we can live our lives however we may please. So now James is going to seek to establish among his readers the importance of possessing a faith that works. The evidence of true faith, he will say, is that it is a working faith. True faith is a faith that works. And as we look at our structure of our section today... I just want you to notice that there are four sections to this text. And I want you to notice that these four sections all end with a concluding statement. So verses 14 through 17 is the first section, and it ends with this statement. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Second section, 18 through 21, faith apart from works is useless. Third section, 22 through 24, a faith is A person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the last section, 25 through 26, faith apart from works is 
dead. So we have these four statements, four conclusions. As we work through this passage, we're actually going to look at it in three headings, because the last two sections are two examples that Paul is going to give us to drive home what it is that he is saying needs to be true. Okay? So let's jump in right now with what I'm calling here, right from the text, dead faith. And let's read verse verse, uh, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So right, right from the start, as he transitions from the last section on showing partiality, he comes in and he asks these two rhetorical questions. What good is it? What good is it? Does it benefit anything if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And the implied answer is, it is no good. Secondly, can that faith save him? And the implied answer is, no, that kind of faith cannot save that person. What James is getting at here is that mere intellectual assent of of orthodox or true teaching won't save him. Anyone, people might say to you, I'm a good Christian. I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe in the virgin birth, that Jesus rose again. I believe in the resurrection, the Trinity, that Jesus Christ is Lord, that the Bible is the breathed out word of God. If you were here this morning, we all sang those things. And by singing, we were affirming those things. But when you stand in the judgment to prove that you're a genuine follower of Christ, to to, to give evidence of the genuineness of your salvation, simply saying that you believe some things about God and or Christ will not be sufficient. Your words alone will not be enough, and your lack of fruit will bear witness that you have a dead faith. Now, salvation, according to James, is eschatological in nature. In other words, it is bound up in the judgment. Just look, if you would, please, at James chapter 5 and verses 8 through 9 in your Bibles there. Here's what he says. James chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. You also, be patient, establish your hearts. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. There's this tension here. The judgment is coming, guys. Think about how you're living. And he's speaking to believers. Then go back to chapter 1 and verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who who love him. That's going to happen at the judgment. So according to James, true faith expresses itself in action. It bears fruit. In the last section, that was chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, where the emphasis there was on showing partiality or not showing partiality, um, those who were not showing partiality were not expressing their faith. They were employing the wisdom of the world. They were employing the the culture and the standards of that Roman culture to fashion and shape their behavior. And this understanding, though, of the relationship between faith and works is not unique to James. We actually hear it um, in the words of John the Baptist in Luke chapter uh, chapter 3. 
John argues that deeds must accompany true faith. Listen, he calls on people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, if you have repented, you will bear fruit that gives evidence of that repentance. And then Jesus himself, when he's talking with the crowds in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he says. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. It will bear fruit, and that fruit will be a reflection of itself, of that tree. Okay? And so we go back to James, and James is saying, if you just have faith, an intellectual assent to an orthodox truth, if you have that faith by itself, it is not enough when it doesn't have works. It is dead faith. That kind of faith does not save anyone. So in today's context, that kind of faith, if you can call it faith, is simply to affirm an allegiance to a written document. It's to sign a creed. It's to affirm a doctrinal statement. It's to say, I'm Reformed, or I'm Calvinist, or I'm a Christian. Now, friends, in order to drive this home, he gives an illustration. And this illustration comes out of the life of the church. James likes to do that. We saw that in the last section, didn't we? About two people coming into the church as a rich man and as a poor man. And he uses another illustration that comes from the life of the church. And it's a picture here of someone who's clearly struggling. They're present in church and they're clearly struggling. Their, their clothing is, is rags and they are hungry. And the person who is there in church says, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. And there's no thought to meeting their needs. Probably in church, they all gathered together and they sang the song that we sang today. We believe in an everlasting, all-creating, almighty Father, that the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus the Son, that Jesus is your Savior, and this person is present. And rather than actually consider feeding them or getting them some clothes, we would respond with true words Accurate, orthodox, theological statements such as God loves you and has a plan for your life. God is sovereign and he will work everything out for your good. Follow Christ and he'll give you what you need. Jesus will provide all of your needs. Now, you can say those statements, some of them are a little kind of not too sure, but the, the, the goal is they're, they're saying, hey, here's some nice words of encouragement to you, but the person needs some clothing and they need some food. James says, what good is that? You say you're a follower of Christ. Emphasis on say but your actions betray your words. True faith requires compassion and action. Stories told of a boy who went to the store, sent by his mom to go get some eggs. He goes to the store, he gets some eggs, and while he's walking out of the store, he trips on the sidewalk, drops a bag, eggs go splat. And there were some people that came around him and they wanted to console him and say, you know what, it's okay, your mom will understand, it's all right, they're just eggs. And another gentleman comes up and says, hey son, I care enough, I care one dollar enough and handed him a dollar. And he looked around all the other people and says, how much do you care? 
And the point is, we can say all the words we want, but the boy was out eggs. Right? Now, it's just practically understanding this relationship with what we believe and what we actually do. Friends, true profession of faith requires action, or it is not real. Now, there's a question in our hearts, isn't there? Kent Hughes rightly warns us, if we tend to talk about our faith in Christ and the truth of his word, but do nothing or very little, we may be in spiritual trouble. If we refuse to get our hands dirty, or if we are cheap and grudging with other people, we must take inventory of our souls. I think he's right. And I think he's driving home things that we need to hear. Write words that are theologically accurate, that reflect the true nature of Christ and the gospel are good, but they are not sufficient by themselves. They don't reflect the true nature of saving faith that bears fruit in action. And so we come to the conclusion of verse 17 of this section. So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, we move from dead faith to what the text identifies now as, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't give you all those things. Um, the text identifies as useless faith, useless faith. It began with a man claiming that his faith was enough. Now the imaginary friend that James is talking to or about continues by arguing that faith and works can be separated. So here's the criticism. Let's read it, verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, here's the imaginary friend, right? You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. There's a lot in there for us to consider. Have you ever had an imaginary friend? James had one, just to, to encourage you, okay? Um, it's all for the sake of argument, though, right? This imaginary friend is saying that there are two positions. A person who has faith, i.e. a faith Christian, and a person who has works. In other words, a work Christian. In other words, this person over here says, well, I'm a work Christian. This person over here says, well, I'm a faith Christian. And that they can function separately, that there can be these two positions. And James is saying that faith and works well, this person is saying that faith and works can exist separately. And James is saying, you can't do that because faith and works can't be separated. The problem is that true faith cannot be demonstrated without works. So he's not talking about the kind of faith and works that you need to be saved. He's talking about having become a believer. Now, as you evaluate the truth of who you are, you can only see your faith by virtue of your works. You can't separate the two. He says, show me your faith apart from your works, which you can't do, and I will show you my faith by my works, which you can do. Now, I need to be very, very clear what the scriptures teach here. Intellectual conviction is a necessary component of saving faith. In your mind, in your heart, you turn to God and you say, you are sovereign over this universe. Your son, Jesus Christ, is Lord. 
He is Savior. He paid for my sins. These are all doctrinal truths. This is intellectual. I am affirming them. I am agreeing to them. But they are not the sole component. Because we can say and we can affirm those doctrinal truths without having a heart that is oriented to God. Or that is regenerated by God. This is exactly what James has already said. Be doers, not hearers only. But in order to be a faithful doer, you have to hear. In order to be someone who is bearing fruit, you must then affirm and believe in your heart with all your being that he is Lord and that he died on the cross for your sins. And so in this text, James is stressing that works, deeds, doing, without belief are insufficient. And belief without works won't do either. And to drive that home, he says this. Look at verse 19 again. You believe that God is one, you do well. That's a theological truth. He's actually here quoting the Shema. He's talking here primarily to Jews and and Gentiles, but primarily Jews spread out after the diaspora. And he's saying, listen, one of the core truths that you teach your kids is, Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. And you believe that. That's good. But he says that's not enough. (laughs) So you believe in the unity of the Godhead. Friends, even the demons believe and they shudder. Hear this. There is not a demon in the universe who is an atheist. They know who they're speaking to. And what's interesting here is that the demons not only believe this truth, this orthodox truth about God, they even have some kind of experience in their being. James calls it shuddering. Listen to what the unclean spirit says to Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and verse 24. What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know the truth. Next passage, Mark 5, 7. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. He's saying, I know you are Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. There's a demon speak. They know the truth. But they don't believe. They shudder. And friends, the demons believe and shudder but it is not a belief of faith. It is an intellectual assent and an experiential response in some way, shape, or form that is insufficient for true saving faith. And friends, that should send bells ringing in our hearts and minds. Contemporary American Christian culture is so bound up in the experiential as evidence of true saving faith. But hear this. James is saying that it is possible to believe right things about God and to have a personal experience 
based on those right things and still not be a genuine follower of Christ. Conclusion now, verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, James is speaking now to this imaginary friend. If you're going to call someone a foolish person, make sure it's your imaginary friend. But notice what this word is actually saying here. It's a strong word. It's something like, you're an idiot! I yelled that in Bolivia one time when we were up at the uh, Inca ruins and they had an echo spot. I thought, what could I, what could I yell that would echo back? You're an idiot! All right, that's from, what, the Grinch. Yeah. But that's what he's saying here. You're an idiot. You're a buffoon if you think that you can separate faith from works. Faith apart from works is a useless faith. It really isn't faith at all. So James is ultimately saying that there are two kinds of faith. He's not contrasting mature faith with immature faith. He's not contrasting lukewarm faith with dynamic faith. No, he's contrasting genuine faith with a professed faith that doesn't exist. Dead faith. Now, friends... Dead faith, first of all, a person's faith that claims to believe in Jesus for salvation yet ignores the poor at his doorstep is not faith at all. That's what James is saying. Hard words, aren't they? Why? Because faith without works or deeds is useless. Dead faith is useless faith that is foolish faith. It is no faith. True faith is faith that is proven by works. See where James is going here? So in, in this section, James has introduced us to two imaginary people who claim to have faith without deeds. And James is saying over and over and over again that a faith without deeds is no faith. It is dead and useless. It doesn't save. So the question for us is, is our faith dead or alive? Is our faith only about intellectual assent to belief in God or in Christ? Or are you basing your eternal life on experience? Or is your faith alive, penetrating and transforming every part of who you are? And so we move now from dead faith to useless faith, which ultimately are two little divisions under this big heading of no faith, <laughs> false faith, professing faith but empty faith, to now his argument about true faith or a justifying faith, we could say here. Now, before we get into the text, I want to make sure that we understand how James is using a couple of words because he uses the word righteousness and he uses the word justification. And those words can have different meanings based on the context. So let's just think through, then, the different kinds of words 
that he is using or different ways in which the word righteous or justification is used. So let's look at the word righteousness first. It's used in in various ways throughout Scripture, but two ways in particular are relevant in this passage. There's what's called positional righteousness. This is how we stand before God. This is a righteousness that happens at the moment of your salvation. God declares you righteous. You are standing before him clothed in the righteousness of Christ. It's not your own righteousness. It's it's an alien righteousness, but you are the beneficiary of that righteousness because of what Christ has done for you on the cross. That is complete and it is instantaneous at the moment of your conversion. Then there is practical righteousness, and that has to do with how we live before God. I am becoming more and more righteous as I become more and more like Christ, as I am growing in my maturity, okay? This is the righteousness, right? Even Paul talks about all scripture is given by inspiration is profitable for doctrine, for instruction in what? Righteousness. This is how you are to live, how you're to grow, how you're to change, right? And then there's this word justification. I'll back up, look. So those who are declared righteous are now bearing fruit by living righteously. Make sense? All right? Secondly, justification. The two ways the word justification or justified is used. First of all, there's this initial justification almost identical to that positional righteousness. God declares you, legal word, declares you righteous, declares you to be without guilt, without sin, at the moment of your salvation. There's no lingering sin. There's no lingering stuff that you have to work off in this world or in purgatory. It was all done at the moment of your conversion. And then there's final justification. And this refers to what will happen on the day of judgment when God declares us right in his sight. It is a justification that confirms or proves that a person's faith is genuine. So we are all, if we're followers of Christ, justified immediately at the moment of conversion, but we also await a final justification, a final proving based on our works that are the fruit of our faith. Get this? We saw last week that this judgment for believers is a judgment of fire where gold and silver and precious stones along with the wood, hay, and stubble will be judged and the judgment will reveal the evidence that you are truly a child of God. Okay? So, Those two words are important to understand and will help us as we now move in our text. James now turns to two examples to reinforce his argument, the example of Abraham and the example of Rahab. Now, just think about this. Abraham was a man. He was a brother. Rahab was a woman. She was a sister. Abraham was the father of the Jews. He was this incredible leader. He was a hero of the people. I mean, all Jews would say, we are descendants of who? Abraham, okay? And then he talks about Rahab, who is a prostitute and a Gentile believer. 
So you have Abraham, you have Rahab. God spoke face to face with Abraham, and he believes God, or Rahab heard about God from a distance, and she believes. Abraham's faith bore fruit in his obedience. Rahab's faith bore fruit in action. Right, we're going to look at these two now a little bit more. We have then, first of all, Abraham's faith was justified by his works. It wasn't that his works brought about justification. It was that his works justified or proved the truthfulness, the, the, the reality of his faith. So to the Jews, as I mentioned, Abraham was a hero. And what mattered to them was that Abraham was their father. They were descendants of Abraham. Abraham is so important that Paul devotes an entire chapter to him in Romans. The writer of Hebrews includes him in this list of heroes of the faith. And now James teaches that Abraham's offering of Isaac was proof of the faith that he had professed many years prior. It was evidence that his faith was alive. So let's look now at the illustration Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, he's not justified by his works when he initially believed. He's justified by his works when he offers up Isaac. So justified by works isn't speaking about initial justification here, but this final justification. The works are going to prove the genuineness of his faith. So in Genesis 15, God had promised to Abraham, who was old and whose wife was barren, that his offspring would be greater than the number of the stars in heaven. Humanly speaking, this seemed totally ridiculous and impossible, so much so that Abraham's wife had fun one night laughing about the whole thing. Now, friends, Abraham believed God. Let's look at this passage, Genesis 15, and we're going to read verses... Um, I think 1 through 6 is what we have up here. Is that right? No, 4 through 6. I'll begin at verse 1, though. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household uh, will be my heir. Verse 4 now, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look to, to, toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now here's verse 6. And he, that's Abraham, believed the Lord and he counted it to him. That's God counted it to him as righteousness. God promised, Abraham believed, right? Initial justification, right? This is the moment of his belief. Now, flash forward many years later, Isaac would be born. There's a whole story in that, right, that's going on. And when his son was older, God commanded Abraham to offer Isaac his only son, his son of promise, as a sacrifice, 
And he takes them up on the mountain, carries the sticks for the, for the altar, sun lays on the altar, and Abraham raises his hand with the dagger to sacrifice his son, trusting and believing God. And then we pick up the story in chapter 22, verses 10 through 12. And listen to what happens here. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Your actions prove the genuineness of your faith. Now you see why James is using Abraham here as an example. Abraham clearly obeyed. Now I would have to assume that he did so against every human fiber of his being. I mean, no father would want to sacrifice his son. But his belief in God was greater than his desire to protect his son. Abraham was truly trusting fully in the promise of God that he had made many years before. He believed God and obeyed God. And by his actions, he proves to be genuine. Here's how James then explains what Abraham did, verse 22 and following. You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith com was completed by his works. So we have this word active and completed. This is what, this, is what these, this fruit does. It's, 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 it's active. It's flowing out of belief and it completes. Not in the sense that that faith needed completion, but the point is it gives this proof and shows now this picture of here's a man who believes God. How does he believe God? It's not just because he says he believes God, but because he lives like it. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Isn't that interesting? Even the story of Abraham, the scripture is fulfilled. And he was called the friend of God. Now friends, a fruit-bearing Christian is a mature Christian who is proving the genuineness of his or her faith. Here's the concluding statement in this section. Verse 24, you see, James says, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's Abraham. Then we have Rahab's faith, who's justified by her works. And although Abraham was a man and a noble Jewish ancestor, James insists that Rahab's experience teaches the very same truth. Again, look at the illustration. Verse 25. And in the same way, was not uh, Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? The story of Rahab we find in Joshua chapter 2. And what we realize there is that Rahab had heard about God from the distance and as a result believed in God. We'll read about it here now as we look at this text. Look at chapter uh, Joshua 2, verses 8 through 11. Before the, the men lay down, she came up. These men are the two spies that were sent by Joshua into the land and into the city to, to kind of assess it. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land 
and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the Lord melt away before you. For we have heard how the, the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you and, and when you came out of Egypt, and that you did uh, what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, friends, Rahab declared her faith in the God of Israel. She gave words to express her faith. The end of the section we just read. But James wants evidence. And what is the evidence? The evidence is that Rahab's faith was proved true by virtue of her work. She receives these messengers, these two spies. She hid them. She collaborated with them and sent them out safely by another way. Rahab put her own life on the line for the sake of the God she now truly believed in. Fruit. And the writer of Hebrews includes both Abraham and Rahab as heroes of faith. Here's what he says about Rahab. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. The point there is that she believed, and her belief was backed up by her actions. Now, friends, James is driving home that simply an intellectual faith, spoken word, or a separate idea, you can do it one way, you can do it another, one by faith, one by works, that will not do. Faith must produce works. It is proven by those works. And the conclusion here is this, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, there's two parts, there's the body, there's the spirit, you separate them, so faith apart from works is also dead. This is the fourth time he has said the same thing. Faith without works is dead. It brings no glory to God. It yields no benefit to the man who has it. Now James is saying that true faith is a working faith. Salvation is by faith alone, but faith is never alone. True faith is always accompanied by fruits. James is speaking pastorally. He's speaking passionately throughout this letter to those whom he repeatedly calls brothers or sisters. He's addressing them as fellow believers in Christ, but he's not making any assumptions as he writes this letter. He's putting them to the test so that they can see their faith in Christ is genuine or if it is a facade. So this passage is a warning to both professors and believers alike. There's enough language in James to let us know that he's going for the jugular of his readers, both the life of the one who is professing Christ and the one who truly believes in Christ. Just I mean, listen to some of the, the phrases that he uses. He says, don't be deceived. He says, ask for wisdom. He says, don't be a double-minded man. He says, don't delude yourself by merely 
uh, being a hearer and not a doer. He says, if you can't control your tongue, you're deceiving yourself and your religion is worthless. You see what he's doing here? He's driving it home. He's passionate and pastorally wanting you to consider whether or not there is a genuineness about your faith. So I'd like to spend my last few minutes addressing three groups of people who are likely all in attendance this morning, professors, believers, and unbelievers. And hear this from a, a heart of a pastor who cares. There's a warning, first of all, to professors. Dead faith, worthless faith, foolish faith are all problems in the church today. Dear professing Christian, and by professing Christian, I mean someone who is not a Christian, someone who simply professes Christianity. It's easy to fool those around you into thinking that you are a true believer because you know the right words, because you can hold your own in a theological argument. You can tell the stories of the Bible. You can pray in public. You can attend church regularly. You are a nice and pleasant person. Dear professing Christian. It's easy to fool yourself into thinking that all that is necessary for you to be a Christian is that you believe in God. But please hear this. Belief in God is not the same thing as being born again. It's not the same thing as being converted. It's not the same thing as having your sins forgiven. It's not the same thing as humbling yourself before Almighty God or calling Jesus Lord. It's not the same thing as God declaring you righteous and just before him. It's not the same thing. If you are a professing Christian and not a true Christian, unless you repent of your sin and put your trust fully in Christ for salvation, you will one day stand before God and here is what you will hear. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and do uh, many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It is often observed and stated that one of the greatest and most neglected mission fields is the church in America. Why? Because we're, we're soft, we're comfortable, we're full of knowledge, and being part of the church is, has been, for a long time, culturally acceptable. We'd rather the, the pastor preach a sermon that will stroke our emotions or give us a practical psychology that comforts or encourages us rather than hear a sermon that exposes our heart and probes inside with our sinfulness. And friends, many don't want that at all. They just want the label, but they don't want the life. So if you are a professor, I'm pleading with you. See what Christianity is really about. Repent of your sin. Enter into new life with Christ. One of the most dangerous places that someone can be is to be a professor of Christ and not a true follower of Christ because they can even be self-deceived into thinking that they are actually a follower of Christ when they're not. And secondly, a warning to believers. 
God is calling you through this text to do some soul searching, to see if your walk with him is out of balance. Work at balance in your walk with God. Here's what I mean. Just as we need to hear in order to do, we also need to grow in our faith while at the same time allowing that faith to bear fruit in active living and application. So friends, it's easy for Christians who are well-intended to become distracted, to become undisciplined, to become settled in old habits that are not promoting a steady growth to maturity in Christ-likeness. It's easy to get soft, to think that time in the Word or time in prayer for those who are, is only for those who are in leadership, who are, I might want to say, the more mature Christians. It's easy to be so caught up in the busyness of this world that your presence at church or your involvement in church is minimal. When you look at your life, what spiritual fruit do you see? How are you bearing fruit? What kind of fruit is it? And I want to I draw your attention to the very familiar first psalm. And I would like just to read the first three verses. And I would like for you to consider here a picture, an image of what it is to, to be a healthy follower of Christ. Just, just read verse 1 with me. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Friends, that's fruit. Because that person has used the gift of discernment, the fruit of wisdom, the fruit of steadfastness, the fruit of determination, the fruit of not giving into the pressure of the world, the fruit of boldness and obedience. They are not doing these things. Why? Because they know that we are children of God. And therefore, we don't want to place ourselves in the context where we're getting caught up with these people. The counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seed of scoffers. It's fruit, friends. Look at verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Again, here is fruit. His delight. It's not just a conjured up like, oh, I've got to read my Bible today. Let me get it out of the way. Some time now. I know my wife's wondering whether I'm reading my Bible or not. I better do it so she can see and other people can see. And friend, that's not it. It's, it's a delight. It's a joy. It's something that we say, I, I gotta get this in. Because I want to commune with my, my Lord and my Savior. I realize that there's a there's a necess, necessity here for me to, 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 to humble myself before him. It isn't that I, I have to read my Bible today simply to get it out of the way. It's, I long to have time to commune with the one who is my Lord and Savior. And you read on in verse 3. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and his leaf does not wither, and all he does is prosper. What is, what's being talked about here is a fruit-bearing tree that adjusts to the winds of change and time accordingly and is tapped into the right resource and is bearing fruit in such a way that there is growth and prosperity going. Not, not, don't think of health, wealth, and prosperity stuff. This is just living life and adjusting to problems and facing, facing issues in a way where you can see this is good fruit. Clearly the fruit is the result of joyful communion with God. Is that fruit true of you? It's a warning, friends, to believers. I was listening this week to a couple of podcasts. One of them was a gathering of missionaries, kind of a panel of missionaries 
talking about their experiences on the mission field, and the moderator of the discussion asked the question, what is one of the hardest things about being a missionary that we here in the United States don't know or understand? And one man in the group responded, um, people are not gonna like my answer, but here's what is true. The hardest thing for me and my family is to come back to the United States of America because it has changed so much. But even more than that, and in particular, the hardest thing is to come back to the church in America. And everyone in the panel chimed in in agreement. Why? Because they're in places where being a Christian has consequences. People who are gathering together for church that week have been beaten for their faith. They have been persecuted for their faith. And they come to the United States with all its bells and whistles and walk into a church and people are just comfortable and, and happy and, and joyful. There's no sacrifice. There's very little persecution in comparison. And all of them say together that they would rather raise their children in the difficult context in which they serve than to return to the United States and have their children grow up in the church in America. The issue there is not the schools. The issue is the church. That should cause us to think, shouldn't it? It should cause us to wonder what are we doing for Christ and his gospel. It should cause us to consider what have I allowed in my own personal comfort to be the rule of my, my life rather than obedience to the call and the commands of God. We just want church so much our way. And then there's a warning, yes, to the professors and the believers, but also to unbelievers. Friends, in so many ways, the church has done a really bad job of showing unbelievers what true Christianity is actually about. And if you are a person who is here this morning, you're an unbeliever and you're still kind of considering this, I'm speaking to you, but I want everyone else to hear it. As a unit, big tent church, all that would be considered by the world under the umbrella of Christianity, uh, of evangelicalism, I should say in particular, we have been guilty of presenting a distorted view of what it means to be converted, what it means to be a follower of Christ, and what it means to live out our faith in our communities. We've been guilty of being caught up with building our own kingdoms, not his. We were guilty of fighting for a social or political movement rather than being the church God has called us to be. Hear this, friend whether you're a Democrat or Republican and independent, our country needs the kingdom of God. It needs the church of God. It needs the gospel of Jesus Christ far more than any political movement. We spend all our time passionate about those things. And there's a place for that. Don't get me wrong. But don't do that without pursuing the kingdom of God through the church of God, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're guilty of trying to be liked by the world around us rather than pleasing Christ. But James is wanting to set the record straight. True religion, true faith is a matter of the heart. The implanted word breathed out by God takes residence inside those who are God's cho chosen and they believe. And that faith is to produce fruit that is healthy, attractive, and satisfying. 
And if you're an unbeliever sitting here today and you've had a really bad experience with Christians and who hasn't, or people who identify themselves as Christians, I want you to know, James wants you to know that God is not happy or satisfied when Christians think and act and speak in a way that violates his will. Christians are not to be rude. They're not to show partiality. They're not to be stuffy and aloof. They are to be compassionate. They are to be compassionate for both the rich and the poor and concerned about the hungry and the destitute. But they're also to be concerned about the spiritual hunger, the spiritual destitutness, or the the lack of spiritual richness. The church is not a group of perfect Christians, friend. We're all imperfect, but we're all supposed to be working on growing to becoming more and more like Christ. We fail, but we press on. So please, please forgive us for our sinful shortcomings, but please don't use us as an excuse to not listen to the truth of the gospel. My failure in giving you an example of Christianity pales into comparison with the beauty and the majesty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look beyond us and see Jesus Christ. Our job truly is to reflect Christ in the world, in our communities, in our job places, even in the context of the church. But the focus is ultimately to be on Christ. He is the one who promises life through the sacrifice on the cross. And when you believe that he has done that for you, paid for your sin, and you experience conversion that is instantaneous and complete, he will declare you righteous and he will say, you are justified in my sight. Friends, the famous illustration of the wise and the foolish builder says this, and I close with, with this text of scripture. Everyone, everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat the house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. The rock would be the teaching of Jesus, his gospel. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Friends, there's only two ways to live. Hearing and applying true faith. Hearing and ignoring No faith. In both cases, judgment comes and exposes the truth. Friends, please don't ignore his warning, his compassion, and call. Repent of your sins and come running to Christ. Lord, we have labored heavily in this text and the implications of this text. We can play the fool, and many of us have. Lord, I'm just thinking of people even in this church who have grown up in the context of church, who made professions of faith early on in life, but recognized later in life that those professions meant nothing because it was simply for someone else's benefit. And finally, they had to come to a place where True faith was actually what happened 
regeneration took place and they actually became one of your children. And what I just wonder here this morning, whether there are those who are in that place. Lord, would you give professors freedom to repent of their sins regardless of what other people might think and humble themselves before you today? Lord, would Christians see the importance of not being lazy with this blessing that they have to be your children, but to grab a hold of it and to produce wonderful, beautiful fruit that comes out of the gospel. And Lord, for those who are in a position of unbelief, would your Holy Spirit have his way and would you quicken that heart, bring life, new life, Lord, because of your gospel, we pray. Now, I don't do this often, but I'm going to do it today. If you're saying, Pastor Rod, I'm, I'm really wrestling with these things. I'm struggling with this. This is, this is a battle for me. Can you just do something for me? Just put your hand up where you are. I'm not going to chase you down. I just want to finish this prayer with you in mind. Anyone like that? Just raise your hand where you're at. Oh, I say a few hands. Thank you. Lord, we regardless of whether we made a physical response, Lord, in our hearts, we're saying things to you right now. May we be a people who are committed to live out of the conversion, Lord, that you wrought in us and to do that for your glory. We ask in your name, amen. Our time is gone here this morning, and so I think we're, gonna, uh, we're not going to have our final song but it's good to see you today. And I want to dismiss you now with God's kindness. So let's, uh, let's just pray one more time and I'll let you go. Lord, thank you for your goodness. May our time in the word, song, and fellowship, Lord, have been pleasing to you today. May you be glorified as we leave for your glory. We ask these things. Amen.